Hey guys, do you want to meet us in person? Come join us at the Minnesota Aquarium Society's Aquarium Expo 2022 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're going to be there March 19th, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Free admission, people. Come join. There's going to be great sessions. I think there's a fish swap. But above all else, you get to meet us in person, not just hear our subtuous voice, but see our ugly faces. And thanks again to our sponsor, Daku Aquatic. Guys, if you haven't checked this guy's shit out yet, get to the website, dakuaquatics.com. He's got crazy deals on shrimp, different fish, plants. Uh, you can use promo code Aquarium Guys at checkout for a sweet discount, but if you wanted a bigger discount on Busa he's got sick imported rare Busa on hand. 20% off with promo code BOOST20. Uh, at checkout, try using mine as well. You never know, could bet make a mistake and you can double up. Wink, wink. Uh, but check out the site, guys. Crazy good products. He even has shrimp lollipops, which I don't think that's intended for human consumption, but not going to lie, I want to try it. Thanks again, Daku Aquatics. Aquarium guys at checkout. Mad discounts. Let's kick the podcast. All right, guys, I brought you to this quicker podcast between other uh, episodes because we have an emergency. So for said emergency, we don't even have Jim and Adam here. They're on vacation. I have a, a temporary replacement co-host, Dabby. You have been on, what was it, like episode 13? We went to West Virginia. You rescued a bunch of fish. And now you've come to live in Minnesota. So welcome. Thank you so much. It's been a while. It's been a hot minute. It really has. A hot minute. But we have emergencies happening, so back to back to track here. We have Bob Likens from PJAC here on the phone. Bob, thanks for coming back on, buddy. Oh, hey, thanks for having me again. I had a great time last time. Well, we, we don't mean just to invite you when doom and gloom happens, but I mean, <laughs> being a lobbyist, you have to keep us informed about important things in our pet trade. Yeah, this is, uh, this is kind of the gig for me. I've accepted that. Sure. Well, Bob, before we get going too far, I'm just going to... Get a little information about who you are in case this is the first podcast people are listening to with you in it, what you do, and what the news of the day is. So first of all, PJAC, Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council, tell us a little bit more about you in that. Sure. I'm the uh, Vice President of Government Affairs for PJAC. We are legislative and regulatory arm of the responsible pet trade. So we engage exclusively on laws that affect the pet trade and regulations that might be coming out of the government at the state or local level that would affect the pet trade. We also actually do get involved with CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, for international issues that affect the trade. Wonderful. So again, being that uh, guy that represents the pet industry, can you tell us a little bit about why uh, we've gathered here today and what's uh, threatening us as of late. Sure. I'm sure everybody has heard that the Competes Act, which is working its way through Congress, 
the way it came out of the House of Representatives had a bunch of language in it that would have amended Lacey. And when you talk about amending the Lacey Act, you talk about having a lot of impact on the pet trade because it has a lot to do with importation of plants and animals. So I'm not going to lie. I, in preparedness for this uh, conversation, because we got to get the word out to people, because it seems this already passed the House. I have a Werther's original here just to calm myself during this. And I think this is not going to quite cut it after hearing that. <laughs> I mean, dealing with issues where your hair is on fire is unfortunately a part of this world. But this is a case where the language moved through the house very quickly and the way it's written would really have a dramatic impact. Luckily, this is not language we've seen for the first time. So we have engaged the Senate in particular on some of this language in the past. So we've already started building some relationships, making some friends up on Capitol Hill to let them know just how damaging this could potentially be to the broad pet trade and particularly herps and aquatic. So part of this here, Bob, is as I'm kind of going around and I'm trying to catch myself up on this a little bit because it's been roughly a week. Me and Robbie have been sitting here talking about some of this. Well, that and I mean, listeners, this is the first time they've heard about it as well. Yeah. So as we come into this, is this something I know as we looked, it was kind of maybe more leaning towards a party line type deal. And what does that outlook look like when you're talking about making friends on Capitol Hill? Hopefully it's not red or blue. I mean, that's the last thing we knew with the pet issue, but yeah, I know. But I mean, when you're, when you're getting into this, I mean, this seems to be something that was the amendment that came through. I think there was, I can't remember how many, but there was a bunch of amendments that were added onto this competes act. Am I correct in that? You are. And they were hundreds of them were voted in together in what they call end block. They just lumped them all together, said, we're going to vote on the amendments. So Yes. And, and you're right. It, in this case, it was very much a party line vote. I think one Republican voted for it and one Democrat voted against it in the House. Otherwise, it was straight party line. But that's not really surprising in this case because the bill is not about the Lacey Act. The bill is about being more competitive with China. They just shoved some Lacey Act language into that bill. So, the party line vote doesn't really surprise us because this wasn't a vote about the pet trade. This was a vote about a bill that had a lot of the Speaker of the House, Representative Pelosi's pet projects in it. So it's not surprising that this came down to a party line vote on the House side. We, we expect it to be different in the Senate. The issue right now is now that that bill has come out of the House and been sent to the Senate, the Senate needs to decide what to do with it. And there are a couple things they could do. They could say, okay, we're going to take up the House bill, uh, House Resolution 4521, and we're going to debate that and vote on it. The other thing they could do is they could say, we're not going to do anything, but that's unlikely. But the last thing that they could do is they could say, look, we, we passed a bill like this last year. In June of last year, they passed Senate Bill 1260, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. So what they could say is they can go back to the House and say, look, we've already passed a version of this. Now you've passed a version of this. We're going to set up a conference committee and the House and the Senate will both assign some members to that committee and we're going to negotiate out the differences. That is very likely what will happen. 
and jumping ahead of myself, the reason we have not put out a new call to contact your senator, contact your representative, is because the Senate hasn't made a decision on what they're going to do yet. As soon as they do, we will be sure to let everybody know very quickly what we need them to do in order to defend the trade. This seems to me as if this is going to go to a committee type approach, like you mentioned there in the end of everything. And if that was to go to a committee type approach, you're reaching out and things of this nature at this point. What does that look like for you on your end moving forward in this interim while we're waiting to find out what the Senate does? Well, on our end, what it looks like for us while we're waiting to find out is we're getting ready for any eventuality. We're doing all the writing we have to do to be prepared no matter what they decide. Because once they do decide, there's not going to be a lot of time to do anything. Once they take it up, they'll do it quickly. Getting back to basis for people that are just jumping into this, the amendments, the Lacey amendments that they're suggesting, what does that look like in the real world if that were to pass? What, what's the repercussions that we're seeing, the enforcements of that those amendments? Sure. Well, there are a few that really would have a big impact. The first one is, as things stand right now, species essentially get blacklisted from coming into the U.S. if they're considered injurious or invasive. And the Department of Fish and Wildlife has a list of species that can't come into the U.S. This bill would change it to a whitelist. And what that means is nothing can come into the U.S. unless it's on their list. So they would have to build a list of every species that's allowed in. And they'd have to train inspectors in how to identify those species. I mean, can you even imagine that with doing it with corals? Because you can't look at a coral and determine what it is. You realistically have to do DNA testing to do it. So the whitelist idea is a huge non-starter for the trade. As you guys know with aquariums, the fish that are popular particularly with marine tank keepers, change over time. We've been dealing for years with a whitelist in Maine, and they wrote that whitelist in the mid-70s, and we haven't been able to get them to add anything to it since. And aquarium keeping has changed a little bit since the 70s. Okay, Minnesota tried to propose something like this as well. We have so many natural waterways. In the DNR, we're seeing all these other states, waterways affected by invasive species. Minnesota has been fighting it for different carp species, crayfish species, invasive snails, and they just wanted to really find a way to combat invasive species. So they proposed a whitelist format. The whitelist format was brought up and aquarists on many other parties involved showed them because they wanted to make a whitelist because they figured that would be the easiest method, showed them over 33,000 species of fish that exists. And then Minnesota looked and thought this is going to take way too much resources and money and went back to a blacklist. Uh, yeah, that was, it was a huge deal up there. One of our members and a member of our aquatic committee, Rick Pruce, was very involved in that. And Minnesota actually passed the law and had a whitelist. Yes. And we had one of our members send them a list of 25,000 fish and said, these are what are in the trade. And they backpedaled and the sponsor of the original bill actually helped us to get the law changed from a whitelist to a blacklist. So the stores and the hobbyists in Minnesota had a huge impact in getting that. But can you imagine if that had stood? And can you imagine if now just to get in, in, into the United States, it had to be on that list? Oh, absolutely. And it makes sense that there are species harmful to bring in. So, I mean, we're, we're not just petitioning here, you know, talking to the podcast of how this is doom and gloom and they should let every fish species in. There's a reason why we have snakehead in Florida. There's a reason that there's Asian carp that jump out of the water, hitting people in the Mississippi coming up of the streams. And there are species that, in my opinion, 
absolutely should not be brought in for the trade just for their invasive roots. And it's debatable. I mean, you have Asian arowana where even a low-end specimen costs $2,000 in a trade, and that's a couple of years salary in uh, the Asian areas where it's native. And they destroy the areas where they're collected. So some of them, even if you disagree with them, make sense to ban. But taking it backwards and banning everything and only letting some in, what's the criteria that they, they want for that white list? I heard that there's studies that are required. What are the amendments saying that we have to have to allow a species on the white list? Well, this is a challenge that you always face with federal legislation is lawmakers like to have the ideas and leave the details to the administrative offices. So basically they would say, we want a white list. You have to study the species before they can go onto the white list. Department of Interior, you figure out how to do that. So how it's done would vary greatly depending on which party happened to control the White House when those regulations and those rules are being written. So it's tough to say because... So they're, they're imposing a whitelist and not telling us how to get on the whitelist. I, I get that that's how a lot of these measurements uh, fall, but that seems entirely unfair that this bill would be prepared with that amendment to be passed on. It just hurts my brain. Yes, yes I, I'm definitely with you. So in a real world, right? What is the probability of, let's say, pretend this horribly passes with the Lacey Amendments and we come in and say, okay, now we have to pick a whitelist. We show them the 33,000, over 33,000 species of fish, or we just show the 20 some thousand that are in the aquarium trade. Will that overwhelm them and make them backpedal the bill? Or because this is a federal bill and it's not done at a local level, it's not as lucky as Minnesota was that we're just stuck with it now. Yeah, I think it's far more likely that the agency, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, would study each of those species. And they'd start with the ones that are most common in their trade and work their way down based on the volume that are traded. The government agencies are not likely to go back to the federal government and say, you made a mistake when you made this law. They are going to do their best to interpret it and enforce it and implement it. The big challenge is one of the other things this bill does is vastly expands the authority of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So you've got a species, whether it's invasive or not, you've got a species that's not on the white list. Okay, so it can't be imported into the U.S. But what this also does is gives U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service authority over interstate commerce, which is something they've never had and the courts have told them they don't have. So now, if you've got a species that is not on the white list, it can't even be aquacultured and traded domestically in the U.S. It can't cross state lines. So this is such a nightmare. I'm immediately like red flagging a couple, uh, couple details. One, uh, imagine some of these fish species, right, that are actually extinct in the wild that is commonly traded in the pet hobby. Those are such at risk because there is no ecological habitat that exists right now. Maybe they're trying to reinstate it. Maybe they just forgotten and it's just held in the pet trade. We hear about the, you know, the cares species all the time. They're in such risk that are only supported by the pet trade. And you know that some random cichlid species that doesn't exist in the wild, that's only in a CARES Act that a handful of individuals across the United States trade to breed, to resupplement the supply, are immediately going to be so affected that we might lose actual species in the trade. Sure, you're right. There are there are a lot of species that are considered extinct. They're extinct in the wild. They were in a lake in Africa and they threw a bunch of Nile perch in there instead and it ate everything. So they don't exist in the wild anymore. And this would uh, this would decimate that. The hobbyists have kept those species in existence. And then you think about some of the deals where 
you've seen cases in the past where you've had banned species. We just had a podcast just released recently here talking about piranha. And the gentleman, Frank Magianis, in the 90s had problems where they would blanket ban a generic fish name and then they would pull, just calling it a piranha, and they would pull anything that the, the fish and wildlife guru, right, felt like qualified as a piranha, which had nothing to do with the piranha species. He had a bunch of his fish taken away. He worked to get the piranha unbanned in Oregon and I think uh, Washington, if I remember correctly. You have to listen to the podcast. I think it's podcast 88. And the fish and wildlife, because they had such vague language, they just had the right to go out and surpass the law and grab something else. And we know that this bill is so blanketed, it's going to give them so much ability to overstate amendments, the Slacy amendments. It just scares the shit out of me. Yep. And it's not always an overreach either. I mean, when you look at the number of species that are in the trade, there is a huge education factor here with, with inspectors and, and enforcement officers, even if they're not trying to overreach. You can't tell me that they could walk in and look at 20 species of coral and tell you which one was the one that was on an endangered list. Well, I mean, think about how long it took for even like, let's take something else that's federally illegal, right? Like marijuana, right? It took years for different states and different organizations that would have something that they would deem as a marijuana product. They would just lock someone up because they have the right to do it and call something marijuana when it doesn't even have any marijuana product in it. Now, some of the states have combated this for wrongful arrests where they're actually having to test and prove it's marijuana to convict the gentleman, right? So imagine this in the fish trade, right? They have to figure out a species that very few people know. There's going to be no way of testing the DNA of that species to see if it's banned. And they're just going to have people walking in blanket, pulling coral whenever they feel like it. As that For that example, for instance. I think it's entirely possible. It, it's, it scares me, man. So when we get back to the interstate portion with that, and to kind of piggyback on what you were saying there, Robs, before I moved up here to Minnesota, I lived on a tri-state area to where we had three different states hitting right there together. We had three large cities all together. So what kind of impact are we talking about when we're talking about having a fish store who's trying to keep themselves running and you've got three different states, you've got three different jurisdictions, you have people currently with different ideas of what's on this list, what's not on this list. And are we expecting someone who's working at a pet store getting their fish? Are we expecting them at this point to be able to know 37,000 different fish and what's on this list, what's not as we go through everything? I just don't understand how the interstate portion of this works on a federal that, level. That's a valid point. I mean, what were they going to have for people to staff this, figure this out? It's, it's like what they did in the 90s when they tried to ban websites and different content online. Technically, it was illegal, but no one was enforcing it because they had no staff, no dollars going in that direction. Mm. I don't think you're going to see as much of the risk of this at the at the store level. I, I think you will you will always have that enthusiastic inspector that someplace that's going to go in and cause trouble at the store level. I think where the real problem lies is this will add so much risk to the transporters and the wholesalers that they won't be able to do it. It's the transporter that's taking those fish across state lines. If they're essentially going to be charged with smuggling or illegal animal transport every time they cross a state line, that's, that's going to be a huge risk to them. And what are the chances that the driver of that truck knows all those species? 
but wouldn't a direct hit towards those trans shippers and towards that, wouldn't that be just a direct hit to the fish stores whenever they come through? Yep, the fish stores. I totally understand, but the majority of people who are probably listening to this podcast at some point are looking at how does this impact me, not how does this impact a trans shipper. So as I'm kind of thinking of this as we go through, I mean, you've got your trans shippers as it keeps coming down through the pipeline. How does this impact the listener to this podcast? Why should they be concerned about this? Not so much, you know, the direct hit there. I know we understand that to that certain well, level, but. So we have a, we have a whitelist banning the species. The species can't be imported. We'd be left in this. I, I hate to use the word, but we're, we're on doom and gloom tonight. Post-apocalyptic fish market. Yeah. Where they only have Florida breeders and you can't transport across these state lines anyway. But even with Florida breeders, if it's on this list, then at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to get that fish anyways, correct? It's a whitelist. It doesn't, if it's on the list, we could might. If it is, isn't on the list, like everything else, then we're going to see even common species disappear. So what are we looking yeah. at? What are we looking at whenever you're looking at what is already in the U.S. versus where are we going to be at? If it's on this white list, what does it look like for breeders in the U.S. now currently? So it's got to be even worse than CITES. Forgive me, Bob. This is a fascinating. <laughs> it's, our, our brains are clearly exploding. Can you tell? It's even worse than the CITES list, and I think some of the CITES list is definitely necessary. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm not going to just say the CITES list is, is horrible, but let's pretend like Zebra Placo, right? Zebra Placo were banned because they're only coming out of one river. They don't breed that fast. They're extremely expensive fish, and because of the price, the ecological system could have been decimated given they were still allowed to be imported. So the United States on the CITES list banned the importation of Zebra Placos, but the ones we had on hand in the United States could still be bred, still be traded. The price skyrocketed and it was harder to find Zebra Placo, but eventually we had a stabilized market of people spending, you know, $250 per Zebra Placo. And we had our own little uh, supply in the United States left over. This is even worse because it, it's giving that, like Bob said, that state to state border you can't cross state lines. So now we have even worse hope of a species like that being affected. You can't transport them. I have a friend. He's been on the podcast. He has a zoo. He legally has lemurs, right? Ringtail lemurs like you see on uh, Madagascar. Yeah. And he can't transport them across state lines. And there's only a handful of people in Minnesota that have these. So eventually they're going to be inbred because, again, they swap between each other. There's only so many species left. They're inbreeding lemurs because they can't get new bloodlines because it's a state border fish are going to be affected the same way that's kind of where i was going with that and what i was thinking because sitting right there on that tri-state area i've got most of my pet stores i've got one in that area and then i had four other pet stores that were in two different states so being able to pull from that whole gene pool and what that looked like now, as a breeder, I'm sitting on the tri-state area and where I've been going for X amount of time being able to supply these other pet stores to be able to supply these other areas. Now, I can't drive 15 minutes to go drop off guppies at this point, you know, Bob, whatever the case may be. Bob, I'm hyperventilating. I'm out of where there's originals. Help me, Bob. I've been where you are. I've been dealing with this a little longer. And here's my biggest worry with all of this is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, when it comes to the tools they have in order to deal with a potentially invasive species, they've really only got one and it's a hammer. They don't have a lot of nuance that they can employ. They can ban things or they can allow them. That's really it. 
So if you've got a species that is highly invasive in Florida, it would not be able to be on the whitelist. Right. Now, if you live in Florida, lionfish are a very big concern. If you live in Minnesota, lionfish are not a big concern. And not a lot of saltwater bodies that are warm enough for a lionfish in Minnesota. So l- let's make an argument, Bob, right? Let's make an argument that we, we could do common sense banning, right? So let's, let's pick one that I agree with, right? I'm a big fan of the dojo loach. We giggle, we call it a penis fish in the podcast. It's a really hardy species. New tank lovers uh, like their cold water species. We're in Minnesota, right? So, and it gets 40 below here. It should kill species, but the dojo loach thrives in these type of climates where they have frozen lakes and streams. And we've seen places in, in lakes in Michigan where that particular species gets released by accident and then takes over a lake and a stream. So immediately Minnesota added it to the ban list because they've seen what it does. They use common sense and seen that the species thrives in that area and they made a logical decision to ban it. However, you may love the dojo loach. I have literally one dojo loach left with a receipt before they banned it, after which I can't I can't purchase anymore, right? Because it's a risk to the ecological system. However, on the counter argument, there's ones that they never expected. In Minnesota, we have a red swamp crayfish. Red swamp crayfish are a tropical species that unaccidentally got released in one of our lakes and they adapted to the Minnesota winter climate. Never expected, never seen before. It's hard to predict some species, but you know for a fact that other species do not survive in Minnesota, so it's much less of a risk. So it's not an exact science. It should keep evolving, but that doesn't mean that we should just ban everything and then work backwards to see what we can release. It just It's such a harmful effect. I would go a step beyond that. I would say that you're right. In order to be a responsible pet trade, you have to acknowledge when something presents an undue risk of being invasive. And you have to make sure it doesn't come in. But the environment, the climate varies so much across our country. This is something that's done very well by the state. And that's my concern is that too many of the people who've spent too long in federal government think all solutions are federal. I'm not going to go on some tirade about states' rights or anything, but this is a case where the states are different enough that it makes sense to have the states decide what is and what is not allowed within them. I mean, it, it just makes sense. It's things in Texas will work in Minnesota. Some things in Minnesota won't work in Texas. It's a different climate, different status. There's reasons why my area shouldn't cover this and another area can. I mean, that's, that's, yes, that's and, logical. And you also have to accept that no matter what you do and what system you put in place, there will be mistakes that happen. I mean, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and I remember that Wisconsin tried to control the algae in the lakes by putting carp in the lakes because they thought that the winters would kill the carp off. Right. Not so much algae, but uh, the carp are still there. So, so a good risk assessment does have to be done, and we're a big supporter of that. But the United States is too diverse to have a one-size-fits-all solution. It's always the seems that every rule, everything, McDonald's has to put caution, coffee's hot on it because someone tried to sue over a coffee cup. It's the few that ruin it for the rest of us, right? I hear rumors about this Lacey amendments were added from the people because it all came from hatred of what happened on the documentary Tiger King. Is there truth to that? That I don't know. I I do know that U.S. Fish and Wildlife would love to see this because they tried to assert control over interstate commerce and the court shot them down. And that has uh, been a sore spot for them. And I know that it is a priority of at least one person on Speaker Pelosi's staff. 
those are the only things I know for sure on this. Although Senate Bill 626, which was the first time we saw language like this, was actually offered up by Senator Rubio from Florida. Okay, seeing it from Rubio, I don't care left or right. Like this is this issue that they're adding the Lacey amendments has nothing to do with your political policies. Like I want to put that first and foremost. You're you're doing their pet owners on both sides and independent sides of the coin. We all have had pets, but seeing uh, a senator from Florida come up with an invasive species topic isn't surprising to me. You know what I mean? Being that's the capital of invasive species. It, well, if Florida, I mean, let's face it, Florida has an environment that is conducive to an awful lot of species being invasive. And because of that, at the state level, they have very tough laws on it. But Florida also has an awful lot of aquaculture facilities. And this doesn't just affect aquarium fish. This would affect food fish. This would affect the herb community, the, the reptiles. The impacts are just really, really broad on this. Dabby, can you imagine not getting our smoked salmon that we get in Motley and like shipped next day? Blasphemy. From Seattle? No, blasphemy. Yeah, you can't take I my smoked salmon. I want my smoked salmon. I'm, I'm worried about your example. Sam, salmon is the one exception that was made in the original Lacey. Oh, thank God. There was, there was a disease in the salmon that was being imported back in the 70s when it was written. So the Salmonids are the one exception in Lacey. <laughs> so, well, uh, okay, okay. Maybe maybe my mahi-mahi. All right. That I can't get. I, I, I don't, I'm really not that hungry, so I don't want both mahi-mahi. I just want the one mahi. <laughs> You just want ma. They'll cut it in half just, for you. I just want the mahi, not the mahi mahi. All right. Well, I'm going to take a minute. We had a straggler just walk in. Alex from the Secret History Living in Your Aquarium, the YouTube channel, just stopped in. Alex, welcome. So while he gets ready, I have questions from the audience. Now, we're doing this podcast live on Discord. We will post scheduled nights. We used to do this every other Monday. Now we do podcasts intermediately as needed. That's why we're doing this emergency call to Bob. Thank you. But we have people asking some questions, Bob, for you. So first uh, question, what does this bill impact? Does it impact plants as well? The Lacey Act, yes, it would. Obviously, as the pet industry, I don't get involved as much on the plant side, although we do a little bit of work with regard to fish tank plants and fish pond plants. But we do very little on that side. But yes, it would. This would affect the plants and animals. Okay. That adds thousands and thousands of different uh, species. So when you say plants and animals, all animals, like lions, tigers, bears, cats, dogs, lizards, rabbits, everything. Yes. So, oh, okay. Okay. Quick, quick question then. You said that there's some amendments that already happened in a lacy, uh, lacy verbiage, right? Talking about like salmon was uh, kosher. What about cats and dogs? Those are the most common pets across the United States. How how in the world is that getting affected? Is that amendment already verbalized that cats and dogs are okay thanks to Petco? Well, Petco's never sold cats or dogs, but... Well, they, no, because they always sell the food. That's their whole market. You know what I mean? This is, and you will see the language in here, it is not supposed to be impacting things that are already commonly in the trade. And definitions are everything, but no matter how you define it, cats and dogs would not fall into it. Although... You could argue that cats in particular are the U.S.'s first invasive species. Well, I, I think about it. If they're, if they're requiring ecological surveys, I mean, imagine you let your cat out. They've done studies on this showing how cats can decimate small critter population and bird population within, what, a couple miles of their, their living address? Just, it, it's a crazy I, thought. Like, what, what constitutes this? Because it's just such, such vague verbiage. 
I will say I am very glad that we do not get involved in, in the trap neuter release programs. We do not take a position on that. And I'm really glad we don't because I've been in state level hearings about it and the pro cat people and the pro bird people can't stand each other. And it gets to be a very vicious fight. Man, I didn't even think of that, Bob. Hopefully you're, you're more in the aquatic sector for things just for the, well, just for the PR. Yeah, I can hear you, Alex. Welcome. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, the thing that I, I'm listening in and, um, you know, thanks for, for having me, but I was listening in and obviously the minimum quantities defined and whitelist versus blacklist and all those, those definitions that are so vague is what worries me. But I just want to kind of impress one thought on everybody, which is when you make laws, you don't just make them for the team you're on. You make them for the next team up to bat too. And so even if you think that this law is great and it regulates things and it makes it so that, okay, we need to regulate most species. Maybe only, I only want a hundred species. You could get an administration that guts this secretary of the interior or swaps it out with some person who's extremely pro pet and all of a sudden legalizes all dojo loaches everywhere and, you know, or whatever. So it's just so vague that it doesn't even outline either side of things. And for the future to come, laws just need to be understood well and not just like the guest said, a hammer to hit every nail. It's just not the best tool. You need a screwdriver, a hammer, pliers, everything, you know? Per preferably a scalpel. You know what I mean? Let's, let's, yes. let's only hit things that are necessary. Next question, unless you got a point for that one, Bob. Nope, I'm good. All right. Next question. Is it true that as a federal bill, anything injurious in one state would prevent it at being added to the whitelist, aka everything's invasive in Hawaii, and that that would spread across to the rest of the country. That is my concern. The language is not that well spelled out, and it would come down, I think, to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Department of Interior interpreting it. And my understanding of the limits that the Fish and Wildlife Service has with regard to those tools we were talking about is that, yes, if it's invasive someplace, it can't make the whitelist. And that's a huge problem, and that's why states already have their own blacklists. And that's why Hawaii has such stringent requirements on importing any animal. Uh -huh. Well, it, it also outlines that it includes Puerto Rico specifically. So I would assume Guam and the Solomon Islands also, which if you include that, that's every species of fish from, from that climate to Alaska, every fish in the world could survive somewhere in the U.S. So that would be really just out of this, <laughs> out of their minds, in my opinion, you know? This is, this is so doom and gloom. It's, it's like I'm uh, in a terrible movie script where they're just trying to ban out everything and just control each, each piece. Oh, so if we go from control here and we're talking about the different things they're trying to control and everything, why is this even a piece of this that got added in as an amendment? What is the benefit to this? Or, cause I feel like you need to understand every piece of that to be able to combat the negative well, yeah, let's, portion let's of put, it. Put the angle, right? Yeah. There has to be a reason this was proposed. Yeah. So, so what, what is their thought process of adding the Lacey amendments? What's the benefit of doing this? Is it just because they, are you asking why it ended up in this bill or why, why it's ended up at all? Like, what are they, are they saying it's a benefit? Cause we're talking about every negative. 
we have to pretend that there's got to be some sort of positive they're looking at here. And this has ended up, I mean, this language has came over multiple things. This isn't just the first time we've seen language like this. Is it so just because they're looking why? for control or is there some verbiage in there that, you know, could be seen by some viewer as positive? I money. Mean, it's always I, money. I mean, if you look at it realistically, it would probably have a positive effect with regard to the introduction of, invas of invasive species into the U.S. The question, is the juice worth the squeeze? Are you willing to kill off this many industries and this big of a hobby in order to potentially improve the invasive situation by an unknown small amount? Right. There are people that would really love to see Fish and Wildlife Service have more power anyway. Just to play devil's well, advocate here, kind of how... We're looking at this and you were talking about the invasive species and how negative and everything. Sure. They, they have to figure out how to control invasive species somehow. Why not yeah. bl blanket, blanket hammer? Yeah, I understand the blanket hammer. And you were talking about whenever it comes down to how much of an impact that it would have. If just playing devil's advocate at this point, wouldn't that open up for a whole new level of, well, while that may kill the aquarium trade, does it, is it really going to kill the aquarium trade when we're looking at breeders and what we could do? Cause I mean, as a, as someone in business, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, now how can I profit off of this? If this were to come through? Well, well so you're trying to throw out a conspiracy theory here to Bob. You're saying that somebody is helping indict this because it benefits them financially somehow. Oh, imagine that. Imagine that. Yeah. Holy cow. I imagine that. Anyone is in a position to set up a breeding facility in every state though, because this would ban the inter interstate transport of all those species as well. So you couldn't move it state to state. So you would have to set up breeding facilities for all those species of fish in every state. Okay. So my point well, on this, if you're looking at every state, I mean, every, as far as every state I've ever been in, when you look at DNR offices and, and fisheries and hatcheries and things of that nature, I mean, what kind of monetary gain are we looking at there? Okay. Or what might that be the case? So what you're proposing, cause I'm trying to make this plain language here, right? Yeah. It's <laughs> you're suggesting in your conspiracy theory, sir, that the fish and wildlife firms want to make more income. So they're the only fisheries that are legal to transport across state lines. Is that what you're saying? Oh, I mean, oh, I'm they, just they, saying that they, might be the case. Go ahead, Bob. Sorry. They wouldn't be able to transport either. They'd ha they would have to set up a breeding facility in every state or every species that, that state wants. So, okay. 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 Let, let, let's, pl let's play that card for a minute, right? If we're going conspiracy theory, let's have a little fun. This has been too much doom and gloom, Bob. This is not Bob's theory. This is not represented by PJAC. I got to put that out there. We're just having a little fun trying to lighten the mood. But um, so if a police officer pulls a person over, they have some sort of illicit substance. The police officer technically is in possession and, and crosses state lines with evidence. The fish and wildlife have to follow their own law, so they can't bring it across the border either. Seems a little crazy just, just for, you know, verbalizing out loud. I, I, not that I don't believe it. So you get, so you get pulled over and now at this point, instead of saying, do you have any drugs or weapons in your car? Do you have any drugs, weapons, or pets of any kind? Pets of interest. Yeah. Exotic do you have any pets, pets of, of interest? interest? Excuse me, sir. Uh, we'd like to take that monkey away from you. That That's just well, my three-year-old in the back. I'm sorry. All right. What you got, Alex? I have another thought and it comes from looking up. I found some history from not this year, but past years where Rubio has also worked with lobbyist groups, including Kaiser Group, who I've seen Central Pet work with, which would be some of the big box pet stores and like Chewy Online, PetSmart, which 
there is the theory, I'm not saying this is true or anything, but some people are saying that there is an incentive for big box stores to whitelist 100 or 200 key bread and butter species and get those cleared. And then after that, they don't want the oddballs. They don't want all the other species that make local fish stores really the amazing places that they are. And that would also encourage Florida fisheries if they whitelist the things that are there. So I'm just trying to follow the money of the biggest players in the pet industry. I think the only but thing I that puts the hanker in it is that even if like someone did, which we're not saying we did, we're not going to shit on Central. This is not a stance of anything of this is a stance of PJ. No, no, I'm just, but I'm just looking at money. That whole state line thing ruins it. Like they can't send it from Florida to Texas. They can't go from Texas to Minnesota. Well, if it's whitelisted, they can, right? Right. The simplest answer to that is... Most of the larger companies you're talking about have invested quite a bit in fighting this. And full disclosure, most of those are also members of mine. And sure, sure. some of them have done a lot financially to support this when they don't even carry marine fish. Sure. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. 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 Just no matter what angle you go down, it's, it's crazy that this amendment exists. I mean, it doesn't matter what political spectrum on. You could have voted for Harambe and... If yeah. <laughs> you're if you're a pet guy and you want to have access to a different stock, grow your hobby, this is just a nightmare. I also think that people should take away from this situation. It, you know, if you start writing your senator, and obviously if it's a Democrat, mostly backed bill, the 3,000 pages that are unrelated to the pet stuff, I mean, they want either votes or money or praise or what What? What does a representative want? It's It's something of the that nature. And so if you write them and just start calling them names and comparing them to regimes from, you know, Nazi Germany or whatever, they're going to shut down and not listen to you and assume you're not voting for them. So no matter where you are on the spectrum, it behooves you to contact representatives on both sides with a issue by issue pointed approach and basically telling them why it matters to you but it doesn't really solve anything to go to our corners and wedge issues in between all of these important aspects of this we need everybody to participate and get involved couldn't agree more this is not a a left versus right red versus blue issue pets very seldom are this is as i said early on the the vote on this came down to party line because this is a big bill that has some lacy language buried in it right there's other uh, things on it so you're you're absolutely right lawmakers care about your opinion at their constituents far more than they care care about my opinion as a guy from dc telling them what ought to be done right so your voice is very important but you have to come across as somebody worth talking to. And the the good news is when the Senate decides what it's going to do, we're going to write that language for you. We will send out an alert to all our members and it will have a link on it where you click through about three links. We will already have written the letter to your Senator and all you've got to do is add any comments you want and hit send. So we will make sure it's phrased in the proper way and addresses the issues and is not inflammatory. So, Bob, as far as the call to action, we have very motivated listeners. Even the listeners in the chat are losing their minds. They're even saying, you know, Canadian citizenship's looking real good right now. Sure, it's joking, but it does affect the people out there at their favorite hobby. That's why they listen to this podcast. That's why they're here now. But they're motivated. They they want to do a plan of action. And you talked about a, a proper time 
on when to have our listeners message their senator. What's the website? It's right on PJAC's website. What's the instructions for the call to action for people that are motivated and want to amend this amendment? <laughs> yep. Well, it's not an amendment now. Now it's part of a bill. It, it is part of the House bill. The call to action will go out as soon as the Senate declares what it's going to do. And the reason that's different is if the Senate says they're going to take up uh, House Bill 4521, then we need to contact the entire Senate and tell them exactly what the problems are with. If they say we're going to conference and we're going to try and work out the differences between our bill and their bill, then we need to contact the conferees probably on both the House and Senate side and let them know what our problems are with the bill. And then if that doesn't work, then we reach out to the full Senate. Because if we reach out too soon, they're not going to read it. They have a lot of things competing for their attention and they're not going to look at it until they know it's an issue for them. So until it goes to conference, they're not going to care. But once it does, we've got to be fast. Well, let's simplify this call to action because Bob, you work this every day. This, this is your core responsibility of keeping up with this, notifying the public, representing PJAC, trying to get these represented as for, for our pet trade. But most people listening to this, they got day jobs, kids, children. It's going to be hard for them to keep up besides some Google news feed that may or may not get fed to them. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to put the, your PJAC website link in the podcast show notes. Please visit them. They will have instructions on how to contact your senator. They'll notify you on your website, I'm assuming, of the appropriate time. Right, Bob? Yep. It will be posted on the website. The other thing I would do that could be really important for this is I would go to your fish stores, the place where you get your fish, your fish supplies, and I would ask them if they're members. Because when this happens, we will send out a blast to everyone on our membership list telling them, do this right now. And if your store is a member, they can get that to you. So I would strongly encourage you to encourage your stores and any store owners that are listening here, encourage your suppliers and, and your shippers to be PJAC members so they get the word in time. Wonderful. I'll have the uh, link for that in the show notes as well. So you can help support PJAC directly, become a member, have your store become a member, and then follow that uh, link that we have in the show notes. Check it send yourself a reminder, check it once a day. These things act fast and we, we definitely need your articulate response that shouldn't have to do with anything about red and blue. It has to do with our hobby as uh, scary stuff, Bob, scary stuff. It, it is a quick plug for a couple other events that are coming up because with this issue, I am now going to be in Orlando for Aquashella and I'm going to be at Global Pet Expo. So, and actually at the World Aquaculture Association meeting at the end of this month. So if any of your listeners are at those shows and want to bend my ear or want to ask me other questions, I will be available at all of them. Wonderful. So I'm going to finish up questions here so we can go through the, the list. There was some notes, actually Alex even put some additional notes and people got more questions about minimum quantities imported in the last year. There's some verbiage there. What is, have you studied that uh, line in the amendment any? Here is the really discouraging part. That means whatever the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decides it. Oh, no. I feel like this whole amendment thing is nothing's defined. It's kind of shot at the hip. And now we're all shitting our pants. 
I hope those Werther's aren't sugar-free. They, they are sugar-free. Oh, so. no, no. I've got to leave this room. That's the worst. I've got to leave this room. Okay, for those that don't know, right, Dabby's mentioning the idea of sugar-free. Have you heard of, heard of the sugar-free gummy bears? Apparently only a couple will work like a laxative. Well, sugar-free <laughs> Werther's cause cartoon flatulence. So I'm I'm uh, I'm on a time schedule that immediately after the podcast. I just I'm gonna. I hope it's after the, the podcast. <laughs> you hope it's after the fuck. All right, so go a nice long family drive. Long family drive. There you go. Hey Bob, I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit. Was if we go back into can kind of follow the trail and we were getting oh, back. Oh no, in, no, more conspiracy uh, theories. No, not conspiracy okay, theories. I'm just I, I'm genuinely curious about how this became a thing to start with. But you said there was a couple people, you mentioned Rupio, things as we, we went through there. What are we looking at as far as how did this Lacey language ever become part of this? Because the American Competes bill at this point is, is a massive bill. Where did this come into this bill at? Well, we, we know why. We just want to know, you know, who and when. This is a favorite maneuver in D.C. This, this is how you get potentially contentious issues through in legislative language. You make it a small part of a big bill that is very important to get passed. And the house has far less rules than the Senate does with regard to how much the things that are added in have to do with the base use of the bill. So if the bill has a central focus of competitive trade, the Senate interprets that fairly strictly. The house does not. So regardless of which party's in there. Okay. There, there is someone, we know the speaker's office has had an interest in this type of language in the past. They tried to put it into the budget bill last year and we managed to get it removed there. But with regard to who offered this specific amendment, there's just no way to tell. This started as a 30 page bill. And the first committee it went to did a full replacement. They cut out all the language in the original bill and replaced it with 2000 pages of this. And there's no way to tell who each specific section came from. Okay. So when we look at this and we're looking forward to through the Senate and everything, as we go through this, how important are those party line candidates take, you know, I'm from West Virginia. So Joe Manchin, somebody who, who votes both directions and and, and I know he's a Democrat, but he, he usually is on, on that line. How important is it going to be to look at the direction they're going with some of this bill to find out what we can do moving forward? It doesn't tend to have as much to do with party as where you are in the U.S. In an issue like this, Senator Rubio is a good example. He's a pretty conservative Republican, but this is a vast expansion of a government agency, and Republicans typically are not in favor of that. So it was so only the house that affected the party lines now that it's in a different stage. Now we, we don't know. Right. And our hope is, and our conversations to this point lead us to believe that the votes are tight enough on the Senate side that they're not going to want to wander too far from what they've already passed, that they're not going to want a lot of extraneous things in there that might cost them a couple of votes because they don't have them to spare. So we think we can influence this on the Senate side. We've been talking to the Senate about this for a year and a half now, ever since Senate Bill 626 was offered last March. So I don't think the sky is falling, but I think the sky could fall very quickly if we aren't effective in letting senators know what our concerns are. We have a good chance of being influential, but we have to make sure enough people reach out that they realize it's a problem. 
for sure. Well, go Bob, ahead, Alex. Bob, do you think that they will vote on this, try to get this going before the midterms because it is kind of a Democrat-backed bill and as it stands, things are a little more favorable to this competes act getting through regardless of this pet insert this pet project or pork that they've added do you think that'll happen before the midterms then probably yes i do i think that at the biden administration is going to want to see this they're going to be putting a lot of pressure on capitol hill to do it well going through the other questions we we have it's a longer question here but it, it breaks down to why haven't we seen some of the bigger box stores talk more about this i know we've seen a lot of the people in our trade specifically like seagrass farms we, we've seen People make stances, talk to your senator, put publications out of how this could affect the hobby. But some of the box stores have not really taken a stance. Is that just because they're they're corporate? They don't want to take a stance on things? Or is there something well, we're not that seeing? Well, be a part of it. But I think the bigger reason is they do take a stand on it. They just do it quietly. They they do it by being my members and, and members of my board. Good. And and that's that their membership dues. And their contributions are what fund by staff to fight this fight. Good deal. Now, I was curious, is there any need of fundraising? I mean, obviously, you probably as a lobbyist group, you all always need more funds and you can always do more with more money. But I'm seeing the amounts that some of these companies are putting up, up to a hundred grand or it's impressive. It's not a small amount. They they do care. Like Like people are asking, why isn't somebody doing something? Well, they are behind the scenes if you look in the right places. So I'm just curious though, can the average person contribute to this cause? I mean, is that useful or should they print local flyers? I mean, people at home, a lot of people are kind of like, well, what can I do? You know, there are a couple of things you can do. The first is when you see our alert, share it with everyone, you know, and get them to respond. The other is go to my website and right up in the upper right-hand corner. I think it is. There's a, there's a button that says donate and you can Donate either to the Legislative Defense Fund or to the PJAC Aquatic Fund, which spends money purely on aquatic issues. Right now, most of our spending is going to a legal fight and getting the Hawaii fishery reopened for aquarium fish and trying to develop a test to detect the use of cyanide in wild fish collection. Those are the big projects we're working on right now. That's a huge one, by the way. It is. And what's really frustrating is you would think the food fish people would care a lot more, but the people who eat the food fish in the places that are using cyanide don't care. So it's up to the aquarium trade to clean it up. So we're trying to, and we have spent a lot of money trying to develop a detection method and from there develop a test for the use of cyanide. I know in the freshwater trade, rope fish are one of the most affected. It's very hard to find any rope fish outside of small breeders or, or communities that have not been affected by cyanide capture, even in their farming methods. It's just, it's so sad. Well, and there's also a, an environmental level of cyanide from mining and other things in certain areas as well. So that can be difficult probably, I would guess too. Yes, you're right. The, the cyanide exposure from runoff, from mining runoff is a huge thing. But what we found with the last round of scientific testing that we spent about $40,000 on was that fish tend to process cyanide into the cyothionate very quickly. So it's uh, a system that long. So you should be able to, if they're given enough to be captured, 
you should be able to detect it, but probably only for 24 to 48 hours. So we are, we are continuing to slog down that path and see if we can't get closer to a, uh, to a good way to do it. So I had another question that I, I think might impress upon people also what we're facing here with this, the, the possibilities if this passed. So I, I happen to have worked with some of these uh, impact studies and things like that, but I'd like to just hear from your take because I'm sure you're m- much more familiar with this across the country. For each species that would need to be approved, There's a little bit of a a notation in this bill that says up to 150 million could be allotted annually for 10 years, which people might say, oh, that's a lot of money. But when you think about 32,000 species of fish, I mean, how much can it cost to even just barely assess if a fish is going to be detrimental to the entire ecosystem variety that exists across the U.S.? I mean, how much is an environmental study assessment in all 50 states going to cost for each species? I mean, have you seen what the price is on those? The short answer is no. I have not tried to go down the road of pricing out what doing risk assessments would cost. You know, it could vary widely depending on which method of risk assessment you use. I've I've had that fight for the last 10 years is government agencies fighting over what is an acceptable risk assessment and, and how comprehensive it has to be. I could spend $150 million studying one fish if you gave me the opportunity to. Uh, Salmon, for instance. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it could vary widely. And you're right. In the grand scheme of things, that is not a lot of money. Well, that and this bill uh, amendment, the Lacey amendment, clearly isn't verbed specifically. So it's not going to change with this one magically. Just makes you more nervous. Justin, you had uh, another question. Yeah, Bob, we've got. We've got listeners all over the world, not yeah. just the U.S. What kind of UK, impact? Australia, yeah. Ireland. You said we were number eight in Canada. That I was mean, just yesterday. Yeah. So one of my big questions here is what kind of impact are we going to see on a global scale with the language that we're looking at here in the Competes Act? Yeah. How could other countries be affected by this if it doesn't get changed? Well, there are countries whose major export is is aquarium fish, these small or you get small third world communities, you get, I, I don't know, are you guys familiar with Project Piaba? Yes. Uh, I'm a huge fan of their work. And can you imagine if they couldn't bring those fish in? You, you'd basically be saying the fish are worth nothing. Go ahead and clear cut all this rainforest because the only thing worth anything here is the timber. So for those that haven't heard oh, about yeah. Project uh, Piaba, this, it's a wonderful program. You can check it out. It allows people in those South American countries that are impoverished uh, area to humanely, correctly capture fish that uh, don't kill the rainforest, that are probably just going to be part of uh, floodplains and die anyway, and make a solid income while importing really valuable species in uh, for us for the aquarium trade. It's, it's a wonderful program. That would crumble, 100% crumble. I mean, their, their catchphrase is, is buy a fish, save a tree, because they provide income in areas where the only other income is clear-cutting the rainforest. Alex, you had a question. Well, I was just going to say that because of things like Project Piaba or Anthony Maserol's research center down there in uh, Quitos, we know that up to over 80,000 people in in Brazil alone and another 30,000 people in Peru 
use this as their primary income source or at least their village that's how their food stand or their boat company that services the the people who go out like that many people at a minimum are impacted there but there's fish in africa there's fish in southeast asia so beyond just the farms and the big companies i mean there's a lot of people that if they don't do that yeah they could be clear cutting they could be illegal mining there's illegal mercury trade that's going on for that mining and all that stuff becomes some of the only other work that's available for them and so a lot of people think that wild caught fish is depleting this thing but they need to understand that there's an all tropical fish. The water rises. It's not a four season system. It's a two season system and the water rises and then it falls. And when it falls, oftentimes there's puddles filled with densities of fish that simply die and dry out. That's why they have 400 or a thousand eggs every time they spawn. And so these people are utilizing that resource and it is actually sustainable. They've found so people really should look into each species there are species that that's not true for but for the most part most of our little tetras and and the popular species are a pretty sustainable thing in the freshwater trade in many cases you mentioned singapore alex i like that one when i look at import lists with jimmy singapore is the i don't know a third of all of the lists it's by far the largest list i can only imagine the people in Singapore, how uh, that's going to be like the hardest hit. I, I actually got to go to Singapore and see the fish farms and see the facilities that did the wholesaling and transshipping. And the fish farms are fantastic. And I saw some ponds filled with arowana. But I, I think part of the reason the numbers are so big in Singapore is that they have such good veterinary inspection there that they know that the fish coming out of Singapore can get into the U.S., because their veterinary inspections are very rigorous. So I think they bring in fish from all over the region that then come out of Singapore to the U.S. Makes sense. Well, yeah, and we start to see places like Singapore that it, it's a city state. It's not a large place. It doesn't have a ton of resources. And fish are a relatively high value resource when you breed the right ones in a small area. So they focus on quality. But I mean, Generally, the list goes Singapore and then Japan or Hong Kong, Macau, Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Czech Republic. Those are kind of the big fish exporters and, and middlemen in the business. But a lot of times you can follow it. And that can be, like you're saying, the secondary market. So the first market could be catching them in the wild. And that supports one group of people. Well, then there's a middleman to the wholesalers and there's the wholesalers and the trans shippers and the local pet stores. So it's not just one person out collecting fish, losing a job. There could be five, seven, 10 people losing income, jobs, and their livelihood because of some legislation like this. Well, to finish up the questions, I think one last one here. They asked, Bob, how do you sleep at night? Do we all have to pitch in for a massage uh, relaxation <laughs> weekend after all this is over? This is, uh, this is what I do. It, it's strange, but I am a non-confrontational person by nature, which is an amazing thing to say for somebody that spent 25 years in the army and is now a lobbyist, but it strikes a personal chord with me because I've been a hobbyist for most of my life. I think I started in third grade with my first fish tank that I got it. And I got my fish at pier one imports, which I doubt even sells fish anymore. They do not. 
but it's, it was always a challenge to keep tanks when I was moving as much as I did in the army, but I have literally had all my fish in essentially Tupperware bins and driven from California to Georgia with my fish in, in the back of my truck so that I could keep my fish tanks going. And so I have a personal interest in protecting the hobby as well as a livelihood in protecting the hobby. And I am the one who staffs our aquatics committee. So I am, I'm very involved with the issue. I believe in the issue and I'm just trying to fight the good fight. Any resources you can get us, whether it is your name on a letter or a couple of bucks to the aquatic fund or to the legislative defense fund, or if you're a store out there or a business out there, for God's sake, join. I mean, we're the cheapest stay in business insurance you'll ever find. Any help is appreciated, but we're, we're out there fighting for what we think is right. Well, for those that are listening, you have two options on the table here. We've been talking about doom and gloom. You have two options. One, you could immediately take this podcast, go out, buy yourself a bunch of breeding stock and prepare for the worst, or you can use this call to action, take this information, share with a friend, give the instructions off the PJAC website and contact your Senator when the time is right. Keep watching the website. The links are in the description. Consider donating, having your store become a member. You can become a member yourself. Bob, you're, you're doing the Lord's work. We, we appreciate you. Dabby, we need a positive spin here. Yeah. So this has been all negative and I hate the doom and gloom of everything, but we're looking at all these negative things with the competes act, Bob, what do we got on, you know, the radar for positive, what are some of the laws, some of the things that we need to be looking for to be able to support moving forward? Give us one story, at least Bob, <laughs> of something that, you know, PJAC recently did that has made just the biggest benefit. Give us something good, Bob. Give us something good. Rainbow and sunshines, please. Yeah. All right. Well, it, here's the first rainbow and sunshine. It's not something that's happened yet, but the rainbow and sunshine here is, yes, there is a lot of doom and gloom attached into some language that at first glance doesn't look like that big a deal. But the bottom line is this is a very winnable fight. We can win this. We just need people to reach out. We just need the resources to do it there. This is not, oh my God, it's going to happen. Let's prepare for it. This is, we should not have that hard a time beating this. If we get the trade and in this case, particularly the hobby involved, because the hobby is a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of fish tanks out there. So if tank owners, if hobbyists, if clubs get involved in this, we've got no problem winning this fight. We just, we just need the help to do it. So that, that is my biggest ray of sunshine. The other thing I would say is, I guess with regard to big wins we've gotten so far, we have seen there, there is an, an act called preventing future pandemics act. And we have worked with senators Booker and Cornyn for about two years now on continually tweaking the language on that and getting it to a place where when it was first written, it was written in such broad terms. The way I read it, it probably would have outlawed most of the U.S. seafood industry. But we got it dialed back to where it ought to be. We got it changed to the point where it only affected animals being brought in for human consumption, had no impact on the trade. And parts of that bill are now finding their way into other language. Parts of it found its way into the budget. So we have been successful in doing these engagements when we've got folks helping us out. And it took a lot of folks helping us out with that one too. We do an annual Hill Day where we have our members 
join us when we go up to Capitol Hill and we meet with congressmen and meet with senators. Obviously, we've done that virtually the last couple of years, but it's been effective. That's been one of the bills we've talked about, and we've been successful with it. So we can, as a trade and as a hobby, have an impact if we get together and do it. The, The problem is it's too hard to get together to do things. Well, Bob, I, I appreciate the the motivation, the sunshine and rainbows. We need that. <laughs> Alex from Alex, that, that meme you just posted, it's a, uh, looks like some sort of a political Senator. He's holding a giant aquarium net above his hand at a podium. And it says from my cold dead hands. So <laughs> we need to spread this meme around, put a link, make this image clickable put a link to the call to action on PJAC's website and spread this with your, your community, bring it to your fish store. And when the moment's right and we see that on the, the PJAC website, tell everybody that has a fish, we have to get this amended. I can't see it. I'll send it to you, Bob. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take that image. I'm going to Photoshop your face on it, Bob. And that's going to be the podcast cover art. <laughs> so you got to send me a profile pic. We'll get this done. Making me famous. Oh, it is Charlton Heston. Yes, it is. That's a, that's a classic. Well, Bob, again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Alex, thanks for stopping by. Again, links in the description for how to act, how to help out PJAC moving forward with uh, stuff like this, even in the future. And check out The Secret History, Living in Your Aquarium on YouTube. Link will be in the description for that one as well. And thanks for filling in, Dabs. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Bob, any other notes for us? Hey, thanks for having me on. Had a lot of fun this time. Had a lot of fun the last time. I am always available to join you anytime you feel I can be of use. You should come on next time when uh, you have some major success you want to brag about instead of just doom and gloom. You know it what could I mean? Be a while. No more doom and gloom, Bob. Yeah, we'll, no, more, no more doom and gloom. We'll have a Patreon hangout if this gets uh, amended. People only care about what I have to say when it's about to put them out of business, though. <laughs> Eh, we'll, we'll have fun. Otherwise we'll, we'll show the, you know, we'll show the better, uh, hot tub version of Bob. You know what I mean? Hey, you want, you want a winner? How about the fact that the last time I was on, I was talking about moss balls and we got, we basically wrote the rules for the federal government and they were going to write their own rules. And we wrote a comprehensive enough set of guidance that, and put it out to industry that federal government decided they didn't have to do anything. Our language was adapted by Europe. Our language was adapted by Canada. So it was all because I was on your show talking about moss balls. Hey, hey, that's what I say. We did it here first. We got to put hashtag Bob brought balls back. That's what we're <laughs> going to up there somewhere. Yeah, we got, we got to put it out there. Hashtag Bob brought the balls back. That is a, that is great news. I didn't know the follow-up on that. I've still collected a bunch of moss balls in my, my state. They finally now let them uh, be uh, brought back in Minnesota. So. Bob, Bob, that's amazing. Thank you. And next time, hopefully it won't be. You guys get all the credit. We get the credit. Yeah. We just here first. We brought the balls back. (laughs) Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, Bob. For those that are listening, share this with a friend. We'll have next podcast are coming out. They'll be with Jim and Adam. We'll be back. They're uh, on vacation and keep giving us form until next time. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I thought that's how Aquarium guys got circumcised. Bob brought the balls back.